Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new installment of Vox Tablet. I'm Sarah Ivry. Today, Jewish genes in the American Southwest. In 1998, a young woman in Colorado named Shani Medina died at the age of 28 of breast cancer. Shani is considered a Hispano. That is, her ancestry is both Native American and Spanish. But genetic testing revealed that her illness was caused by a mutation that we associate with Jews. And she's not the only one in her family who has it. Relatives of hers, a lot of them in fact, have died or been diagnosed with breast or ovarian cancer. How it is that this extended family of Roman Catholic Hispanos became carriers of this deadly mutation is the subject of a new book by Jeff Wheelwright. The book is called The Wandering Gene and the Indian Princess, and in it, Jeff Wheelwright tells the tragic story of Shani Medina, as well as the story of how one specific genetic marker could have made its way from ancient Babylonia to a small southwestern community with no Jewish history to speak of. Today on Vox Tablet, we're speaking with Jeff Wheelwright. Jeff, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thanks very much for having me, Sarah. Towards the beginning of your book, you say that the book is really a biography of a gene. But it also is, as you make very clear, a biography of a young woman who died far too young. Tell us a little bit about Shani Medina. Who was she and how did you find her and her family? The strangest thing about her, I suppose, for my interest and maybe your interest, is that she was a Jehovah's Witness. As you point out, her uh, background was Catholic, Hispano, but she herself was a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, I was assigned by Smithsonian Magazine in 2007 to go out and track down cases of uh, inheritance of this so-called Jewish gene in this Hispano-Catholic population. And when I arrived at the little town San Luis, which I call uh, Calabra, it's actually a string of villages called Calabra, San Luis is one, uh, I heard the story of a magnetic, beautiful a uh, young woman who died eight years earlier, and yet people were still talking about her. And uh, once I dug into it, uh, I learned from her mother uh, straight off that she had had a uh, genetic test before she died. And so once I found out she was a carrier, everything else fell in place for my article and then later for my book. So Shani and so many others in her family are the carriers of what we commonly called the breast cancer gene. And that gene is really, it's a mutation that is associated with Jews and specifically with Ashkenazi Jews. But why is it surprising to have found that in this community? I mean, we all know that there are Jewish communities in the Southwest. Couldn't somebody, you know, a couple of generations ago have had an interfaith fling and uh, thereby communicate this gene forward? Right. Yeah, everything you say is true except for one fact. It is, it, it's called uh, erroneously an Ashkenazi mutation. It's actually a Jewish ancestral mutation. As you probably know, the BRCA1 and 2 genes are the breast cancer genes. And there are three so-called founder mutations in Jews uh, worldwide. That is, these three mutations originated uh, in the Middle East and it uh, got into the literature, uh, this uh, particular one, 185 Del AG, as an Ashkenazi mutation, uh, only because Ashkenazi Jews um, are the most common Jews in the world, and, and the scientists of the same background discovered it, and it, it did uh, earn that name Ashkenazi, but it also occurs in Sephardic Jews, and 
Shawnee's family, the Hispano families of New Mexico and southern Colorado, um, have uh, this mutation proves it, Sephardic Jewish ancestry. Now, you, you asked, well, how do we know it couldn't have come in to this community with Ashkenazi traders? Uh, as you know, the, the West did have uh, Jewish peddlers and traders from, uh, from Germany um, spreading out, and they did intermarry a little bit. But the reason we think, uh, scientists think, that it came via the Sephardic uh, Spanish-Mexican route was that the other two mutations, so-called foundry mutations that I mentioned in Jews, do not occur in, in people of, um, of this background, Hispanic background. So that points again to Spain, where the mutation has been found. Um, I just want to clarify, though, for listeners, that Shawnee's family are not crypto-Jews. That is, they are not descendants of people necessarily who pretended outwardly to be Christian but then secretly would light Shabbat candles at night. I mean, they, to their knowledge, uh, when this whole discovery uh, came to light, had no idea that there was any Jewish ancestry in their family. Is that correct? That's correct for the the immediate family of, of Shawnee and her her parents, but she has a first uh, cousin once removed who um, also carried this uh, BRCA1-185 Del AG mutation and who also had breast cancer. She survived it. This woman, uh, who, is, who I describe in, uh, in Chapter 9, uh, did discover <coughs> memories of uh, her grandmother's household and uh, what she thought of as kind of suspicious or weird practices like sweeping dust into the center of the room and um, covering mirrors after a funeral. Hmm. And she began to believe, and after a little bit more research, that in fact um, she might well have Jewish ancestry. She got very excited about this and for a while uh, dabbled, if you will, with the uh, with a new identity that she, that she might be Jewish. And again, this is a this is a first cousin once removed, so it was very close. This uh, cultural phenomenon to Shawnee's family. Mm-hmm. What is it about this mutation uh, that makes it so deadly? The mutation per se isn't any more deadly uh, than any other um, deleterious mutation of BRCA one or BRCA two. Uh, all ethnic groups in the world. Um, are susceptible to carrying uh, a mutation. There are actually now thousands of possible misspellings, if you will, of the BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes. Um, What sets uh, Jewish people apart is the carrier rate, the the likelihood that a Jewish person will have one of the three I mentioned, is ten times higher than the likelihood that uh, my family, say, or another ethnic group in the world's family might, might carry it. So, but once you have the mutation and um, your, your risk of breast cancer, if you're a woman, is, is quite high, 80% over the lifetime, um, it doesn't, the particular flavor, if you will, or, or, or spelling of the mutation doesn't matter. You have breast cancer and it's, uh, it's treated just the same way and um, your, the outcomes are, are pretty much the same as, as for what's called sporadic breast cancer. In the book, you give historical context to the resilience of this gene over you know, generations, centuries. What would explain the persistence of a gene that doesn't 
promotes revival. I mean, doesn't that seem both counterintuitive and just basically anti-Darwinian? It does. Um, you have to remember that unlike some genetic disorders, and most famously Tay-Sachs, which, although it's a recessive disorder, meaning that two, two bad copies or two flawed copies have to come together, but if a, if a, a little boy or girl is going to have Tay-Sachs, they're going to be dead before they get to breeding age. In this particular case, it's, a, it's called a late-onset disorder. And even though, as in the case of the woman I wrote about, Shawnee Medina, she uh, developed a tumor at 26 and died at 28, she, could very well, she didn't have any children, but she could very well have had her children uh, and then died. And so that's so evolution, if you will, the culling, the Darwinian culling that you refer to, uh, can't uh, act quickly enough uh, to stop the mutation because it's already done its work. Why is it so uh, prevalent among a Jewish population? In a word, inbreeding is probably the main factor. Uh, secondly, and, and this really was, uh, it, this is a theme I explore in pretty good detail in my book. The historical story of Jews, as you know, uh, leads into uh, episodes of persecution. And in uh, genetic terms, these result in genetic bottlenecks. If you um, curtail a population sharply through pogroms, um, th which, as you know, is, it, it did uh, happen to Jews for sure. the last 2,000 years, episodically. Uh, if a small group of, of people emerge from a, a persecution, the genetic rearrangements can kind of get a, a little bit askew uh, when you come out of a genetic bottleneck. And so, uh, you know, bottlenecks plus the, the uh, historical tendency to marry inwardly, that's, those are the reasons... Um, that the frequency did uh, expand in Jews compared to um, uh, other ethnic groups of the world. And uh, the same kind of thing most probably happened in colonial New Mexico, which has, a, as you know, it's 400 years that, uh, that uh, Hispanos, who, who are a Native American uh, slash Spanish uh, people, but they, they lived in a closed world after the founding of the colony, and uh, really haven't didn't open up to the world until the late 19th century when Americans took over, and it's very likely that they also the endogamy or inbreeding in that community caused the mutation to expand um, at an unnaturally high rate, and that's that's why there is so much uh, uh, breast and ovarian cancer running through uh, certain families like like the one I wrote about. So can we identify where the initial point of contact between this Jewish gene and the New Mexico population uh, occurred? Well, the route is most probably, um, if you want to go back to the beginning, which I, which I do in the book, really to the uh, 2,000 years is the, is the estimate for when the mutation appeared on Earth in, in a Jewish man or woman, his or her descendants as it's expanding, if you will, in the small group of uh, dispersed Jews. One group goes via North Africa to what they call Sepharad. In the Middle Ages, uh, persecution of the Jews uh, forces many of them to become Christians, or if they don't become Christians, they're thrown out of the country, as you know, in 1492. 
and uh, as part of the diaspora to the new world, many of them go. We, they go to Mexico. They're, they may no longer have any Jewish memory, but some of them do have Jewish memory. Uh, the Inquisition is still uh, active in uh, Mexico City in the, in the 17th century, and it's thought by some historians that this encouraged um, Spanish colonists to say, you know, you know what, I'm heading to the frontier uh-huh. where I can get out of the uh, teeth of the Inquisition. And so they go, go up the uh, Rio Grande and they form this colony that we now know as New Mexico. All of this complicates any discussion uh, for Jews of what it means to be Jewish, whether it's a race or it's a religion or is it a cultural heritage or is it simply a genetic code? Uh, And these debates are certainly not new. I just wonder to what extent you have found yourself caught up in these debates. I've thought about it a lot and and not not come to any firm conclusions. I I gave a reading in Tucson the other other day and uh, I gave a little rap about identity which I think is an important point about uh, how Americans in this politically correct you know, postmodern era, everyone's, everyone has the right to form their individual identity. And I realized, uh, although I respect that right, one thing that I did almost unconsciously in the book was gravitate my admiration toward people who were willing to subsume their individual identity into something uh, of a higher purpose, and really we can include Jehovah's Witnesses, fundamentalist Jews, I mean, I write about this guy, Rabbi Eckstein, and um, hardcore Spanish Catholics like St. Teresa of Avila and the, and the Penitentes of New Mexico. And the, these are all group identities, social constructs that individuals for a higher purpose, I think a, a, a deeper a spiritual purpose, have signed on to foregoing their individual rights. What's really fantastic about your book in some ways is that it just covers so much ground. I mean, you go from Babylonia to the Iberian Peninsula and the Inquisition to New Mexico, uh, and not just geographic uh, distance have you covered, but I mean, you talk about identity and religion and, and culture and how all these things intersect. I mean, it's such rich material. Where do you go from here? I mentioned I went to... Um, to um, Israel last summer, and the, uh, my wife and I went. We wanted to see the holy sites of uh, Jerusalem, um, and I combined a little uh, reporting on genetics, but it really was a vacation for us. We visited a, a, a monastery uh, in the Palestinian territories, an Eastern um, Orthodox monastery where Mass has been said every day for 1,500 years, and um, I began to sketch out a uh, a book project that would take in again people of of three faiths. Um, I'm I'm interested in the resolution of the of the Israeli Palestinian problem, but I I have nothing to add to this very um, toxic, if you will, debate. But I think I figured out a way to base myself at this monastery and look out at the two peoples who are. Uh, at this point, kind of unable to resolve their problems. I'm going to do that um, with a, and you're the first to know this, Sarah, with a <laughs> an environmental story about the untreated sewage of Jerusalem, which flows from uh, East Jerusalem uh, through the Kidron Valley, which is a very important 
for those who, uh, who are biblically knowledgeable, the Kidron Valley is a very important uh, in both the Old and New Testaments. It flows untreated past this monastery and uh, empties out eventually in the Dead Sea. There is a move to, to solve this problem, put um, Israelis and Palestinians uh, back on the same page to get a sewer plant built, and the monks, the Greek Orthodox monks, of this monastery are the are the spiritual guides of this uh, e- environmental uh, reconstruction project. So that's what I want to write about next. Probably you're surprised to hear that. No, I think it sounds great. I look forward to reading it. Jeff Wheelwright, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been enjoyable. Jeff Wheelwright is the author of several books, including most recently, The Wandering Gene and the Indian Princess. It's out now from W.W. Norton. We'd love your thoughts on our podcast today. Why don't you email us at podcast at tabletmag.com or simply post a note on our site. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.